All right, welcome everyone to He's Done It, a mostly sports podcast. I'm Corey Novotny, and I'm joined today by Benjamin Carlson and Brian Wells. Our main topic for today is NFL free agency, as there have been a flurry of signings and other roster moves since the new league year started last week. We'll give our takes on some of the best and worst deals so far, including Le'Veon Bell's new deal with the Jets, the Jaguars landing former Super Bowl MVP Nick Foles, and the blockbuster trades of Antonio Brown and Odell Beckham Jr., in the quick hitter, we'll discuss the 2019 NCAA Division I Men's Basketball Tournament, as the selection committee has revealed the 68-team field. The three of us will discuss favorites we like, potential Cinderella teams, top seeds that should be on upset alert, and our predictions on who will be cutting down the nets on the road to Minneapolis and the Final Four. Later in the episode, we'll discuss player and fan interactions following last week's altercation between Russell Westbrook and Utah Jazz fans in Embrace Debate, as well as the debut of our new segment, Athletes in the News, where we'll discuss UFC star Conor McGregor's most recent arrests for smashing a fan's phone. And in honor of St. Patrick's Day, the three of us count down the luckiest people throughout history in today's top five. So welcome back to a new episode of He's Done It. We had a little break from football for the last month, but the new league has started, and we had a ton of moves already with guys signing in free agency, a handful of trades, and we're going to start things off by talking about some of the changes in the AFC North as the Steelers lose some of their star players in Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell, while the Browns made some noteworthy signings, none bigger than their, well, no bigger addition than their trade of Odell Beckham Jr., the uh, former Giants wide receiver who gives Baker Mayfield another weapon. And you got to wonder, do the Browns, after years of being one of the worst teams in football, have a roster that makes them one of the best? Their their problem is no longer that uh, they're lacking talent. Now it's time to see if they can turn uh, their reputation around because they've got some absolute studs uh, at many different positions, especially on offense. Baker Mayfield, now he's got his targets. He's got a stable of good running backs. Uh, and, and not to mention some of the competition in the division just got worse, namely the Steelers. What I like about this move is that even though I'm not a huge Odell fan. I mean, the Browns have been so bad for so long that they're not really trying to create a a locker room that's exactly uh you know v- you know well veteran driven. Uh, you know they got a lot of crazy personalities in that locker room with Baker Mayfield as their quarterback. They brought in Kareem Hunt with his off field issues, and now they have Odell, who's the one of the big bigger diva receivers receivers in the league, and. I think this. I think the Browns definitely won this trade, but I don't think the Giants um, are, should deserve the crap that they've given. You know, they've been given because 
I think the Jabril, Jabril Peppers is pretty good. And not only that, but I think it was just time for the Giants to move on from Odell and, you know, make Saquon the the franchise player. So I, I want to get into the Giants compensation on this for a minute. But as Ben said, the actually, as Brian said, the the Browns added a diva wide receiver in Odell Beckham Jr. Ben is saying the Steelers got worse, but that was because of them getting rid of a superstar diva wide receiver. And I love Antonio Brown. He has been my favorite Steeler for the past five, six years, ever since he really burst onto the scene. Uh, and now there's a question of, is that a case of addition by subtraction, or is their offense really going to take a huge step backwards now that Juju Smith-Schuster is the, the main focus point? And losing Le'Veon Bell, look, he wasn't there last year, and they were fine with their tandem of uh, James Conner and Jalen Samuels with Conner making it to the Pro Bowl. But, you know, as a Steelers fan right now, the biggest thing I'm holding on to is the Browns are in a place where they've never been before with a first-year head coach. And other than that, talent-wise, it seems like Cleveland is a, a legitimate threat, not just to win the AFC North, but really contend for... The, you know, among the, the top teams in the AFC this year. You could make a case that the Browns are the third best team in the AFC, and maybe even second if uh, Tyree Kill ends up being, uh, you know, being released by the Chiefs if uh, the news that came out last week is, ends up being true. I like that. Tyreek Hill to the Browns. You heard it here first on He's Done It uh, because, you know, for one team, that's the thing about the NFL I'm not a big fan of. It's like if you break the law or do something really bad on one team, if you're good enough, you're allowed to join any other team immediately. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's just the current team, the team that you broke the law uh, that you, while you were a part of that team, they can no longer have you. But you, it's fair game to go anywhere else. But, okay, so we've talked about, uh, a lot about a few teams here. Um, and I, what I mainly want to compare is the compensation that the Steelers received for Antonio Brown compared to the compensation that the Giants received in exchange for Odell Beckham Jr. Uh, let's start with Antonio Brown. The Raiders traded a third and a fifth round pick to the Steelers in exchange for Antonio Brown. This is a textbook definition of uh, getting fleeced, okay? Antonio Brown is way better than that. Antonio Brown, in my opinion, and I think the opinion of many uh, football fans, is that Antonio Brown's the best wide receiver in the NFL right now. And if he's, and if you don't think he's the best, he's definitely top three, top five, even if, if you're being really, really disingenuous. So the Steelers just got an elite player in exchange for a couple of picks that could could have just as easily been wasted on bad picks in the third and fifth round. This is they they've, they've absolutely robbed the Steelers in the situation, and Anto- it's really Antonio Brown's fault because the way that he was acting before, like when basically between when he did quit when he quit on the Steelers and when this trade was pushed through, Antonio Brown was acting like the least marketable player of all time which could be a huge favor that he did for the Raiders <laughs> because he wants his new team to be good too. Why wouldn't he why wouldn't he want his his team that he's going to to uh be that much better, right? You don't want them to get rid of their best player in exchange for you because then you're joining a worse team. Yeah, he um, he tanked his trade value. That's that's why yes, he was only yes. a third and a fifth. Talent-wise, he's worth the first round pick. You throw in age, yes. you throw in you hit a pretty favorable contract considering how how good he is. You know, maybe you kind of bring it down to a second round pick. But the reason why it was only a, a third, which 
let's be honest though it's a 66 overall pick in the draft it's the the second pick of the third round so just saying third round pick doesn't tell the full story there but when you're saying that the Raiders maybe give up the 24th or the 27th worst case the 35th and all I have to do is give up the 66th that's a matter of the Steelers wanted a ton of competition compensation they set a first and then some and Brown just went off everything on social media all the off the field antics that have happened over the past few years and that's what really hurt his value and you know I wish the Steelers could have gotten more from him and I I don't know if this is going to be a case of addition by subtraction, but it's just one of those things where the Steelers can move on. And the Raiders, they can take them on. They're going to move to Las Vegas next year. We'll see what happens with downgrading from Ben Roethlisberger to Derek Carr, if it's a a huge drop-off, or if AB is, like you said, the best wide receiver in football and makes the Raiders' offense so much better than it was last year. Even even though that the Steelers didn't really get that much in return for Antonio Brown, uh, they were smart not to trade him to Patriots or the Chiefs or any of the other contending teams in the AFC. There were actually rumors that the Patriots uh, were trying to uh, trade for Antonio Brown. They there were rumors that there was they were trading uh, a second and a fourth for Antonio Brown, but they ended up taking the third and the well, like you said, early third and a fifth uh, to the Raiders. Which I actually would ra- if I was running that organization and if it was between. Uh, taking the second and fourth, but trade him to the arguably probably the best team in the AFC, or trade him to uh, far west as possible uh, to a team that's probably going to be like third or fourth in the AFC West. I I would rather do that instead. Yeah, there is no chance that they were trading him to the Patriots or a division rival in the AFC North, uh, regardless of how how crazy he's made himself seem over the past few years. Or Another few rumor that I heard was. Uh, um, even though this is not Antonio Brown, it has to do with Odell Beckham. There were also there were trade rumors last year of the Patriots are trying to get him, and I do kind of believe uh, what Chris Sims says that um, Patriots are trying to get Odell Beckham, and then the Giants are thinking like, okay, what are we missing here? Because whenever the Patriots want somebody, you know, they're just gonna take full advantage of us, and then then we're the idiots out of you know out of the trade. Well, I'm glad you brought up Odell because he is a good counterexample to Antonio Brown because I think that the Giants, despite, honestly, talent is so hard to come by in the NFL. I I think that trading away a generational player like Odell Beckham Jr. is really hard to come away with and get anything good. Same thing, same way uh, I felt about Khalil Mack, Um, even trading away Amari Cooper. It's like you you have these guys that are so rare that you come across. Uh, To get rid of them, to get rid of talent now is always a tough choice. Uh, I don't really agree with the Giants doing what they did here, but I think Odell had a little bit of something to do with that. Anyways, here's what they got in exchange. They got a first, they got a third, and they got a starting safety, Jabril Jabril Peppers, who I think still has uh, a lot of room to grow and become a better player. He was so amazing for Michigan. He's such an athletic freak. That is adequate compensation for the generational talent that you're getting out of a uh, wide receiver like Odell or Antonio Brown. And on top of that, Odell is younger by like five years so you're getting a you know a generational player for that much longer who knows how how long antonio brown will stay elite but if you look at his numbers he is basically the only player who's rivaled jerry rice's numbers like to this at at this age um antonio brown could perceivably or or, or, uh, potentially match jerry rice's numbers or get close if he keeps up this level of production 
until he's 40. Uh, (laughs) So still a long way to go, but he's on track for it, which is more than pretty much any other wide receiver can say. So, um, but it's it's just a really go, uh, good juxtaposition, uh, and and in one example, a player tanking their value and their current team suffering for it, and then another player not not doing it as much to affect his stock and uh, his team being highly rewarded for it. You know, you can go back and forth on uh, the the Giants' compensation, what they received for Odell Beckham. Um, I personally think they could have gotten a little bit more, but regardless of that. What are they doing? Why Why would you sign him to a five-year, $90 million deal last year only to trade him this year? They're going to take on a, what, $16, $17 million cap hit? And then to go out and sign Golden Tate as his replacement to a four-year, $37 million deal when he's, what, 30 years old? It makes no sense what New York is doing. Like, why draft Saquon Barkley last year with the second overall pick if you're just going to waste the four years you have him cheap and then all of a sudden be in a situation where you have to give him a big-time contract down the road or let him walk uh, when you're, you're, like, just getting ready in theory to contend? You don't know what's going to happen with their quarterback situation. Like, they want to try Eli Manning out there still, but you're going to get rid of his number one weapon? And... Even if you go ahead and draft, you know, Dwayne Haskins or Kyler Murray, whoever they get in the the first round, are they going to be in a position to succeed any more than Eli is? And I don't know. It just does not make that, any sense to me that the Giants that was, are doing. That was the same point I was going to bring up that, like, even though the Giants' return I don't think was that bad, like, you're trading your one good receiver, your one-star receiver, and you're probably going to tra- uh, draft tr- Dwayne Haskins and... You're going to surround him with Golden Tate and what, maybe Sterling Shepard? And like, and then there's just a giant drop off after those two. Yeah. Yeah, they're right. It seems like they'd be in a great position to tank for some of the quarterbacks next year, like Tua Tagovailoa or Jake Fromm or Justin Herbert. Uh, but if they end up drafting a quarterback this year, then it doesn't make sense for them to go ahead and draft another one next year. So I don't really know what the Giants are doing. On the flip side, there are a lot of teams who have made some really, really impactful seeming uh, additions. And a couple teams, we already talked about the Raiders. We kind of talked about the Jets with them getting Le'Veon Bell as well as CJ Mosley. And a few other teams made some really big moves. So I would like to kind of start with uh, some of those teams with Oakland and New York who are taking on their own pittsburgh cast-offs as well as a lot of other guys that could seemingly help them in the near future and long term okay so uh, yeah let's definitely the raiders i think were one of the most active teams in free agency and so let's talk about them first so obviously we talked about antonio brown that's a game-changing acquisition right there but they also picked up tyrell williams and um i was listening to this other podcast strong opinions podcast and the guy on there said something I thought was intriguing was he was talking about how Juju Smith-Schuster and Antonio Brown both made the game easier for each other, especially Antonio Brown making the game easier for Juju and turning and helping to turn him into this superstar. I do think he's a superstar on his own, but some of the stuff that he did um, was a result of Antonio Brown drawing a lot more coverage. So Tyrell Williams has an opportunity to be a big improvement on what the uh, Raiders are working with there, but that's not all. The Raiders also made Trent Brown the highest paid offensive lineman in NFL history this season. Um, so I'm a, I'm a Trent Brown stan. I've actually been a big fan of his ever since the Niners drafted him in the seventh round back in like, it was like 2012 or 13. 
Um, it was a while back. It might even have been later than that. But he was a seventh rounder um, that ended up being amazing. He's six foot eight, 380 pounds. He's considered the largest man in the NFL. He's a monster. And he, yeah, and now he's the highest paid offensive tackle. Uh, what what do you guys think of the, this the only uh, thing, signing? The only thing I'd bring up about Trent Brown is that uh, before he was traded to New England for a third-round pick, there were uh, talks about how he was a little lazy and his work ethic wasn't great, and that he was only a great this year because, one, he was in New England, but, two, because it was a contract year. And now that he's he got this big offer, um, I'm, I don't know if he's going to keep up that same productivity or if he's just going to uh, go back to being the you know same sort of lazy, mediocre tackle. So I actually think uh, Trent Brown is like one of the more questionable moves of the offseason. And, you know, he had a really decent year with the Patriots last year. Of course, starting left tackle on a Super Bowl. It's hard to complain about that. And as Ben was saying, he was he was pretty solid with the 49ers for a seventh round pick. But it just feels like that they're, they're paying a lot of money making him the highest paid offensive lineman in NFL history. When you're really rewarding him for a year that, you know, he was playing on a contract year with arguably the greatest offensive line coach in history and Dante Skarnecchia for the Patriots. So I don't know. Uh, I think it's an aggressive move by the Raiders. When you have cap space, you can maybe afford to do things like that. But I don't know if that's uh, a great move compared to some of the others they made in like requiring Antonio Brown and Tyrell Williams. They could use a, a pass rusher and a you know star receiver. Oh wait, that's right, they got rid of Cleveland. <laughs> and, uh, ha, ha, ha. But but now is when we're going to start seeing the effects of those because not to mention that so they added two big time wide receivers. They added Trent Brown, who they're hoping is going to be their answer at offensive tackle for a long time. They also added veteran safety Lamarcus Joyner. Mm-hmm. But all that happens before. The Raiders have three first-round draft picks in the draft this year, so the Raiders are not—they're—they're they're not even close to being done uh, with their acquisitions for this year. So this is going to be, I think, a altogether a huge step forward for the. So Raiders. what's more likely that John Gruden uses the fourth overall pick on a guy like Josh Allen or Quinnen Williams, and then twenty-four and twenty-seven maybe takes like a running back, another another defensive player, or he trades all three of them for Kyler Murray and the number one overall pick? <laughs> oh my gosh! Not for Kyler. Tyler Murray. Although at this point, with John Gruden's really long contract, I'd love to see him trade all three of them for like multiple future first-round draft picks and just keep stockpiling until in year nine he just has the entire first <laughs> round to himself. <laughs> you know, uh, John, Gruden's talked really highly of Derek Carr as of I until he's you know sucked the past couple of years, but I can totally picture John Gruden just be like, "Man, I'll tell you what, man, Kyle, Kyler Murray." He could play. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I don't really understand why Arizona is so quick to move on from Josh Rosen for him, and I wouldn't understand why the Raiders would do the same thing. Uh, Derek Carr has not been the same quarterback he, as he was uh, before his injury in 2016 when he was arguably an MVP that year. Yeah, other than Matt Ryan and Tom Brady that year, he was probably the MVP that year until he uh, – broke his broke his foot and it's been downhill ever since yeah he's he's dealt with his injury concerns but last year he was pretty competent considering how bad that team was so uh, i'm very curious to see what oakland does moving forward but he's him and ab are playing catch in his backyard so they're trying to develop a rapport there 
Uh, and then looking at the New York Jets, they're a team that their their general manager Mike McCagnan is seemingly on his way out if they don't turn things around this season. And he went out and made some moves. He got Le'Veon Bell and he got C.J. Mosley, making him the highest paid middle linebacker in the NFL. So they're they're going all in uh, with some of their moves here to at least try to show like, hey, we can be competent moving forward. But now there's also the question of, did the Jets get a steal with Le'Veon Bell and the contract that they're giving him compared to what he turned down from the Steelers last offseason? Well, I actually don't think that they're really getting... I don't think it's a steal for the Jets as much as it was just like terrible, and I mean like egregiously bad uh, business decisions by Le'Veon Bell. He'll never re uh, he'll he'll never re-earn the money that he missed out on for last season. He was acting so valiant and acting like he was you know this is I'm doing this because I'm worth more money than this, which sounded great. I was fully behind him honestly until he signs this contract, and I'm like, oh, I guess you really didn't. I guess I guess you were wrong, Le'Veon Bell. You weren't worth all that money, were you? It was egregious, but, but gotta... he was he bet on himself because not only is he he's a running back, but he's kind of a you know he's unique. You know he could uh, be a running back, but also be a receiver like any at the other same time. running back. Like <laughs> I I agree that he he's a he's a talented player. Made the Steelers' offense a lot more dynamic than what the other running back situations had, but. Not only did he sit out an entire year, and all of a sudden he's a year older with less wear and tear, but still hasn't played for a year. He was hanging on Miami. The The Steelers had a Pro Bowl running back out of a guy who barely did anything when he was his backup. So there were a lot of things that really hurt his value, and I understand he didn't want to show up and get hurt, but realistically, he was getting more than whatever the Steelers said was guaranteed whether it was you know as low as 10 million was what i heard as high as 33 million which in that case he's literally making two million dollars more to play for the jets instead of the steelers but unless he like had a a horrible off the field situation come up the odds of him having a a horrible injury even with a torn acl he was still going to be coming back so it just seems like an all-around really questionable decision for him he's getting paid you know, he's making more than the Steelers actually paid him, considering that he'd never signed that franchise tag. But I don't know. Uh, I agree. It's probably not a seal for the Jets. But the, the thing that hurt his value the most was was definitely James Conner uh, having a big, big year last year. Huge year. And, and it just I mean, that's just something we'll find out mm-hmm. is was Le'Veon Bell really that good or was it the Steelers offensive game plan slash offensive line? I mean, obviously, he's a good player. No one's doubting that. But how much of it was those other factors? Because James Conner got in there and did really well. He's a good player. As, he's a good player, too. Uh, but can he take those talents and, and give the same kind of value to a team like the Jets? And so we'll find out. And I'm excited to see that. I really am excited to see Le'Veon Bell in a new offense. But his personal choices here. I mean, he lost basically he bet on himself and he lost. Um, and it's going to be, it, it's really difficult to look at the way that he acted last season and say, uh, in retrospect that it was really justified at or, or a smart, uh, idea at all. Um, going beyond Le'Veon, we've got CJ Mosley inside linebacker. Who's really good. I mean, uh, congratulations to the man for 
you know, getting paid. I just don't know if an inside linebacker is worth this kind of investment, especially when you're a team like the Jets and you're looking to uh, take a lot of steps forward, not just one big step forward in one position. Yeah, there are a lot of people who are saying, oh, the Steelers should sign CJ Mosley. It's like, first of all, you're paying $17 million a year for a middle linebacker who can't help in pass coverage. And second of all, when you you have a ton of cap space like the Jets, you can maybe afford to make that flashy risk. But when you're Pittsburgh and you don't even have $17 million in cap space, it makes no sense. So for me, you know, I think New York's making some moves in terms of the AFC East. They could legitimately finish in second place in this division, but that doesn't imply that they finish better than six and ten. So I don't know. Uh, when you're in Mike McCagney's position and you're given that one year, you say, all right, here's a ton of cap space. Go do something with it. You're going to make moves like this. And whether or not they turn out, you, as a Jets fan, you have to be happy that they're they're being aggressive. They're going out, making these moves. Uh, but to me, I think that really the Jets' success this season is going to start and end with Sam Darnold. I was yep. just about to say yep. that too, yeah. I mean, I don't know how much better they are defensively with C.J. Mosley, but offensively with not only Le'Veon Bell, but also having a new head coach that's more of an offensive mind in Adam Gase. Uh, I think Sam Darnold could uh, have a pretty good sophomore season. And, you know, he could be just like Jared Goff, where he had the uh, really bad rookie season. Well, Sam Darnold didn't have a really bad rookie season. He was just, you know, in a, he was in a bad offense. Weapons. Yeah, right. bad system. Todd he, Bowles only, was his coach. You know, his running back... his. His running backs were Isaiah Crowell and Blau Powell and didn't have much of a coaching staff as well to help him. Yeah, the jury's still out on who's the best quarterback from that draft class. Baker had the best year, but also had the best weapons. Now you give Sam Darnold, Le'Veon Bell, you bring back uh, Robbie Anderson, and you know they, they, if he can put things together in a second year, then the Jets are going to be decently successful. Uh, whether or not it's enough to be legitimate playoff contenders. Uh, I think that he still has the opportunity to really inspire some hope and confidence in his team going forward. They'll probably be the second best team in the AFC, which is not really saying much at all. Since No, no. And that doesn't even guarantee going 500. So. Right. But, you know, if the Jets were to go 7-9 and nine this year, that'll look pretty good compared to what they've done in the past couple years. So... Uh, moving forward to like a couple teams in the NFC North who were fairly disappointing last season. The Lions and the Packers, they made some big moves. The Lions decided to sign every single former Patriot that was a free agent, uh, getting Trey Flowers. They brought in Danny Amendola, who I thought for sure was going back to New England. And, you know, they're, they're being players in free agency. I, I don't know how that's going to work out for them, but when you have Matt Safford who's making a ton of money and you're able to bring in some key pieces to around him on both sides of the ball and you're in a tough division, I think that's decent moves on their part. And then Green Bay went out and they made a few defensive moves. Uh, in my opinion, one of the more notable ones was stealing Adrian Amos from the Bears. So those are two teams that are at least putting in the effort after not finishing last year as well as they would have hoped. Right, but it's it's what what kind of effort are you putting in? Uh, the Lions are putting in effort into becoming what the Patriots used to be. And I I don't know if that's really a proven formula. I know Matt Patricia really loved his time on the Patriots, but does adding Trey Flowers mean you're getting the same Trey Flowers that was playing for the Patriots? Um at the same time, uh Danny Amendola, come on. 
Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's not, I, I don't know. Like, the only reason we're saying that's, like, he's even notable is because he's Danny Amendola, because he's a Super Bowl champion, uh, because he's been on the Patriots. Like, it's not, I don't look at that as, like, oh, they fu- Matt Stafford, he's finally got his next no, he's Megatron. He's replacing Golden Tate with a Barely, less Golden though. Tate. I, yeah. I, yeah, Golden Tate, I think, is a more versatile player. Um, anyways. They also had a Justin Coleman, Packers. another former Patriot. Best Which might be the worst Nickelback. contract ever. Making him the, one of the higher-paid nickel corners. I'm going to say right now, Matt Patricia will be fired by the end of the season. I swear. that those are that, That's one of the worst contracts ever. Right, but but now let's take a look at the Packers. And yes, I agree. Adrian Amos is a, 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 that's a really good move. Not only are you gaining a good safety, but you're also taking a good safety away from your, one of your biggest rivals. But also adding the Smith bros at the edge positions. He's got uh, Zadarius Smith and Preston Smith. And uh, these guys are getting paid big money to do one of the most important things that defenses can do today, which is rush the passer. So if they can get... This this is where big money doesn't necessarily mean big results in free agency. That's the risk you're running. Uh, But the Packers have finally decided to move on from the pass rushing skills of Clay Matthews. Um, and I think they had what Nick, Nick Perry, Perry rushing the released. other side. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? It, 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 the, maybe these won't. This won't be the best pass rushing tandem in the NFL, but I I think it's going to be an improvement. And if the Packers can play halfway decent defense, I mean, we all know what Aaron Rodgers can do. The only thing that I'm looking to see them do is add uh, maybe just more weapons for Aaron Rodgers. He can. You can do a lot without having any real big names on offense, but this last season was kind of ridiculous with some of the pedestrians he was trying to throw the ball to. So um, I like these moves by the Packers, uh, getting better on defense. I don't think Randall Cobb fits their offense anymore, With given that Rodgers, he just runs around in the pocket and just pretty much throws to Devontae 90% of the time, and then the other 10% of the time he's throwing to Geronimo Allison. And I, I, Cobb, at this point in his career, being 30, uh, um, pretty much almost at the end of his career i i don't know if uh how much he, how much he has left in the tank so green bay is what are they going to do with their new coach what is going to happen with aaron Rodgers? is he just going to be bigger than the team uh or is having matt lafleur going to turn them back into a team that really you would think should be at least a playoff contender if not a Super Bowl contender, but the Vikings disappointed last season. The Bears kind of took advantage of that and wound up putting together a phenomenal defense. I wound up winning 12 games, but got bounced in the first round of the playoffs. So I'm, I'm pretty intrigued to see what's going to happen out of the NFC North this season, and I could really see it going a number of ways. So uh, I do think that when you're in the case of Detroit and Green Bay being the third and fourth team, at least they're going out, they're spending money, they're trying to improve themselves, and it's just a matter of what we're going to see with those results. Yeah, Aaron Rodgers only has one ring. He's way too good to only have one ring. If you're the Packers, you've got to do what you can with what's left of Aaron Rodgers' prime. You've wasted so much of it. Uh, so it, I think that improving on the defensive side is super important. There's plenty, There's still the draft. Uh, they, there's still other wide receivers, um, like a low key for, in my opinion, I think that I might be higher on this guy than a lot of people, but I think Michael Crabtree could go to the Packers and become a reliable set of hands for Aaron Rodgers, completing on third downs and having a red zone threat. 
Um, uh, I know that he wasn't the most impressive player ever for the Ravens, but Michael Crabtree's never been like the most physical guy. He's been one of the premier set of hands in the NFL. And I think Aaron Rodgers can put it wherever you need it. You just got to be able to come down with it, which is something that a lot of those, you know, deeper roster wide receivers could not do for Aaron Rodgers in clutch moments last season. If you've got him healthy, Aaron Rodgers all season, you just give him the targets and you got to take advantage of what's left of his prime. So I'd love to see them add something else on offense. But for the most part, I think if you build a good defense, Aaron Rodgers will do the rest. I don't love Michael Crabtree, but I do agree that I think it was Jim Harbaugh that said it. Jim or John Harbaugh that said uh, it was that Mike, my, yeah. Michael Crabtree has the best hands uh, in the league. And, and that was probably back in like 2013, 2014, but still. Yeah, when he it, was out, when he was really good with the, the Niners and the Raiders. Yeah, but he's only 31. And again, I, I don't think that he's going to be your, your number one target, but I think that he can be a really good As a number two or three, he, he's good, yeah. Yeah. All right, uh, so I guess kind of singing with the quarterback theme there with Aaron Rodgers, we have our biggest quarterback free agency move this year, and that is Nick Foles to the Jacksonville Jaguars. Last year, you can kind of make the argument that Jacksonville was really just a quarterback away. Uh, I think it was a little more notable in 2017 when they were actually good and made it to the AFC Championship game versus last year when they fell apart after a decent start to finish 5-11. and And now they have this former Super Bowl MVP, but they're paying him a lot of money. And he, while he has a very impressive playoff resume, we haven't seen him play starting quarterback for a long period of time in five, six years now. So how do you guys feel about this move? The one thing that I'm scared about uh, for this move is as a Patriots fan, when you have Tom Coughlin as the guy that's running things down there and you have Nick Foles as the quarterback, <laughs> scary. <laughs> that's all I could say. But I mean, I don't, yeah, I love I, he's better than Bortles for sure. He's way better than Bortles. And um, yeah, I mean, it, I don't think that the quarterback position is actually asked to do all that much in Jacksonville. I think Jacksonville loves to lean on the ground and pound uh, run game and then playing really good defense and, and th- that's my favorite style of football to play is just running the ball you know get three downs of running gets you the first down and then stopping your opponents from scoring most of the time which might you know it, it can be that's that's honestly my least favorite way i mean the, the, the minnesota, the minnesota vikings did nothing doing that you know adrian Pearson won an mvp but yeah then they'd make the playoffs and then the lose strongest it's classic football. If you're the strongest, meanest, biggest boys out there, forget about finesse. You can just push the other team yeah, out Yeah, let, let's just forget and, about all the rings and, and just right. make the playoffs on the... <laughs> you can still be a really competent football. That's why they call it like old school smash mouth football because the way the game used to be played. But that what I'm getting at is they don't, they're, not actually, they're not actually asking all that much of their quarterback. Uh, I just think that... Uh, Nick Foles is being put into a really good position. Blake Bortles is just exceptionally bad at football. I don't um, know so if I, Blake Bortles is all that bad. He like, did he, he did have good some he did have some postseason success a couple of years ago, uh, and almost beat New England at Foxborough. So I don't I don't know how much of an improvement it is with Nick Foles. I, I mean, if he lights it up like he did in the Super Bowl every you know for every game, then of course it's an improvement. But I don't. We know he can do it. For and, like and Blake two, Bortles is mobile. He's mobile as well. And so I I don't know if it's that much of an improvement. I don't think. 
if Leonard Fournette is back on his uh, on his you know two years ago uh, level of playing, and then if that defense plays like the like they should on paper, I think Nick Foles is the right guy to steer the ship. But we'll see. We we'll, we got to see a full season of him. Yeah, all I know is I bought into Kirk Cousins on the Vikings last year, and that proved to be a bad investment. So I'm going to be a little well, hesitant. Well, that's on... because. But right, but Kirk Cousins is the opposite of Nick Foles. Nick Foles is only clutch. Kirk Cousins is everything but clutch. <laughs> Kirk Cousins yeah. will win you some very entertaining regular season games. But as soon as things are on the line, Kirk is going to fold under pressure. Meanwhile, Nick Foles potentially. I don't know, this is like going back to his Rams days, but like Nick Foles will lose you some really winnable games, but then he'll win against all odds in a situation where he shouldn't have a chance. So between the cha- the choices there, I would rather have Nick Foles, and I think that the uh, Jaguars is a perfect place for him to go. So yeah, in order for Nick Foles to put himself in those clutch position you know, situations, he's going to have to have that full body of regular season success. So... You know, we'll, we'll see what happens with Jacksonville if Fournette can stay healthy, if their defense can uh, you know, be the team from 2017 and a team that showed a lot of good signs in 2018. But let's move on to a different defense that's improving, and that has been San Francisco 49ers. They went out and signed Quan Alexander, traded for D Ford. Jimmy Garoppolo is going to be healthy next year in theory, so... You know, is this finally the year that you know San Francisco gets back to the team that we started to become accustomed to when Jim Harbaugh was coaching them? Yeah, I mean, this was this current year, the year that just finished, was supposed to be the the year that we were back because of Jimmy. Unfortunately, got injured early, but um, barring any sort of big time injuries like that, this is looking like a pretty hopeful year for the Niners. Quan Alexander, they overpaid for. Him. Yeah, absolutely. Right off the bat which is a terrible way to start free agency. I'm not exactly sure what the thought process is there. Maybe, I really don't, because this last season, part of the reason why the Niners were so bad was because they were so injury-stricken. So what do we do? We go and sign a guy that keeps getting injured for lots of money. So Quan Alexander, I know, is a good linebacker, but will he be worth the money? It's looking unlikely. Um, D. Ford, on the other hand, filling a massive need for the 49ers. The 49ers have a lot of first-round draft picks on their defensive line. Eric Armstead, Solomon Thomas, and, of course, DeForest Buckner, by far the best of that group. And they're good at playing interior line. But no one on the 49ers is good at rushing the passer. D. Ford is filling a gigantic void, and he hopefully won't be doing it alone. The 49ers do also still have the number one, or sorry, number two pick in the NFL draft. And while there's a lot of talk of them trading back if joey bosa is there nick bosa there's or sorry nick bosa there's no way that the 49ers don't take him that is a, i mean even even if he is uh gone josh allen has also been talked about a lot although he's also been talked about in the sense where we might be able to trade back uh depending on if somebody wants to trade up for kyler murray but um the 49ers addressing a, a serious need, probably the biggest need in the offseason by uh, picking up D. Ford. They also added Jason Verrett, a oft-injured uh, cornerback from the Chargers. So we need someone <laughs> who can play across the field from Richard he's, Sherman. He's awesome when he's healthy, but he hasn't he's, been he, healthy yes. since 2015. So you don't fully yeah, know what you're getting with him, but 
And joining the 49ers it does not usually lead to better health, but no. we'll hope with uh, with Jason Verrett. He's he's definitely a gamble. Jordan Matthews, former Eagle, former Bill, former Patriot, joined former Patriot. That's right, and a legend at all three of these teams. I'm <laughs> yeah. sure you know. Um, but yeah, he's instantly the largest wide receiver on the 49ers, and can ho- help hopefully help with some of those red zone woes that the 49ers... The 49ers are one of the worst in the red zone. I think they were dead last, last season, in the red zone. Uh, just horrible at scoring. Until, uh, they whiffed on... Until they get better ahead, weapons than Kendrick Bourne and Marquise Goodwin and Trent Taylor. The, I don't. I can't see the Niners uh, going wow. anywhere. I mean, yes, you know they do have George names? Kittle, though. George Kittle's the man. But outside of yes, him, no, yeah, th- their, their weapons uh, aren't, aren't exactly the best. Put some respect on his name. But, yeah, I'm surprised anyone even knows Kendrick Bourne's name or even Trent Taylor because he was even less relevant this year than he was a year ago. But, anyways, uh, on the offense, they did add Tevin Coleman, which is somewhat surprising considering Matt Breda was so prolific last season and Jarek McKinnon, who's getting paid so much money, is still on the roster. I think this threatens Jarek McKinnon. I don't think Breda's going anywhere. But Jarek McKinnon, who hasn't played a down yet for the 49ers and is comes with a pretty big price tag could be displaced by Tevin Coleman, who has already proven that he can be pretty good. Tevin Coleman has as many touchdowns as 49ers. In the last three years, Tevin Coleman has as many touchdowns as all the other 49ers running backs combined in the same span of time. So I know he's in the Falcons offense, but it's... This is also as like a number two or addition. three running back his entire time there. So. That's true. That's true. And he can receive the ball. So... That's another good addition. I think that just like the Jets, though, the most important thing on this team is the quarterback. Uh, can Jimmy be, first off, healthy? And second off, can he be what his price tag says he should? Uh, well, you know, we'll, we'll wait and see. I'm excited, though. I'm uh, As long as we've got a quarterback, I think the 49ers have a chance. Kyle Shanahan has yet to show us what he's truly capable of when he has a uh, you know fully healthy team. Um, and we'll see what the Niners can get because, again, they've got the number one pick in the draft, so more value to come. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say I think if uh, Jimmy Garoppolo has a healthy season, San Francisco goes at least 8-8, eight and eight and they compete for a playoff spot. Don't know if they're going to get in, but more reason to be optimistic about the future. Oh, yeah, big time. All right, so now let's kind of you know, wrap things up. Uh, we did kind of give our takes on some of the signings here, but any any moves that you want to go out and say are the best or the worst? For best, I, even though, again, I don't like Odell, definitely improves the Browns team. Uh, so I'll go with that as the best. And then the worst, <laughs> Justin Coleman. That, that's that's one of the worst <laughs> contracts, I've again, I've ever seen. I, um, I got to go with Antonio Brown. The Raiders fleeced the Steelers and uh they, that's a massive acquisition for them especially if Antonio Brown can continue his dominance so that's got to be my, my best my worst is Ryan Tannehill to the Titans oh that's another good that's or a bad one yeah that's a oh that one's yeah that one's that's terrible a head too. scratcher are they paying you, him admit? everything that Miami paid him or did they work no, out a new contract no. okay yeah he's getting paid less I think it's in like the the low teens but what message are you sending to your team if you, if you're the Titans? It amazes me that it amazes healthy. This guy might be better than our franchise quarterback, you guys, Brian <laughs> Tannehill. Okay, like, that's not what I'm trying to hear. It amazes me that Adam Humphreys decided to pass on New England and go to Tennessee, and 
from rumors that I heard for for actually less money. Less money to go to a worse team. <laughs> Doesn't make sense. Better potentially a better place to live though. Nashville's pretty sweet. Speaking of New England, Bruce Ellington to the Patriots is a match made in heaven. Expect to see Bruce be a contributor next year. I, he's not going to be like a fantasy relevant wide receiver, but I fully expect him to integrate himself into that offense and maybe even see some postseason highlights. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would like to see him do well, but I also don't want to see him do well at the same time because he's on the Patriots now. Uh, so best move, yeah, I got to agree with Brian. I think the Browns trading for Odell Beckham Jr. That before that, Cleveland was just kind of a, oh, maybe they take a step up. Things look promising last year. That all of a sudden got people saying the Browns could legitimately go to the Super Bowl. So I got to go with them as the best. That trade is the best move. The worst move, can I go with the entire Giants offseason to this point? With uh, <laughs> yes. If I have to go with an individual one, I don't know if I would say that Trent Brown is a bad player, but I just kind of feel like he's overpaid. And I know you're big on him, Ben. But I just, I kind of expect That's that. That's not to, the worst. It's probably not the worst move. No, I, I think everything, like with the Giants trading Odell and then signing Golden Tate. Uh, but I think in terms of the most overpaid player, that's what I'm going with. Um, when, uh, when Trent Brown started getting good for the Niners in like 2015, 2016, I, 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 he was like my leading candidate for a 49ers jersey to buy really? because we were such we are such a dumpster fire and I just wanted to buy a new jersey. All my jerseys were ret- like to players that no longer played for the Niners. I was like, uh, you know, seventh round draft pick, right tackle Trent Brown. Like he's the only guy I can count on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but even that would have been a bad choice because we ended up trading him not too not too long after that. So um, it's been tough. The only Niners jersey I own right now for a current player is uh, number 93, DJ Jones. And I don't mean to brag. I'm not trying to flex on the podcast or anything, but it is signed. It's signed by the man himself. So I'm, uh, you know, it's it's definitely my favorite jersey in my possession right now. I actually need to get a new Steelers jersey because the only ones I have are James Harrison and Antonio Brown. Uh, two guys that didn't have the greatest exits with the team. So I think I'm between (laughs) Juju and James Conner if anyone uh, wants to give me a recommendation uh, between which one to go with the only the only Patriots jersey I have is Wes Felker and he kind of even though he was awesome he kind of cost him a Super Bowl <laughs> with by dropping that pass <laughs> arguably Brady's fault but still people say that if Welker catches that game's over all right let's uh let's let's wrap up the NFL talk for now let's move on to our quick hitter segment and we'll be talking about March Madness. So the 68-team field has been revealed. We know who's in the bracket. And the three of us have varying levels of uh, interest and background into college basketball. So uh, for me, I guess, like, I, I started filling out my bracket and after last year there were so many upsets and i'm looking at this and i'm struggling to pick against some of these top teams and i is that just me or is this really a top heavy bracket compared to past seasons i mean all the quote-unquote experts did say that it's been top it's a top heavy uh bracket and they pretty much if i watched that show and pretty much all of them had one and two seeds all in their elite eight and some going with texas tech and and then I think Reese Davis was the only one who had one outlier uh, in his late eight. And so, I yeah, I, I would agree with that, that it's 
pretty much top heavy after the first eight or nine teams. Yeah, I've got some some upsets in here, but I don't really have any like uh, upsets going very far. Like it, it starts getting to the point where it's like, okay, I pick this upset, but then going against some of these teams that you know are really good, it's even harder to make that pick. Um, yeah, that's so, just how I. Feel. Well, I think half of all brackets have Duke winning it all. So if you want to be a contrarian and have any chance of winning your bracket pool, don't pick Duke. Um, or I guess you can you can pick them and hope that you do really well with everything else and out outrank all the other people who pick duke if they do win it for me i'm as a north carolina fan this i'm like trying not to come out this as a bias but i i really feel like it's either going to be them or duke who ends up winning this all and i'm going with north carolina i'm having duke lose to michigan state in the elite eight just because that's duke either they make it to the final four or sorry either they don't make it to the final four or they win the national championship because they do get there so I got to find a way for them to lose before that happens. But I don't know, going around, it's like UVA, they lost to a 16 seed last year. They're historically bad, yet I'm struggling to find a team who I think would genuinely knock them off before the Elite Eight. I could not agree with more with what, everything you've said. So in my bracket, I have North Carolina winning it all, and then I have them beating Michigan State. Uh, I actually, all right. So... I, yeah, I actually don't have uh, Duke losing to Michigan State, though. I have them losing to Virginia Tech, and uh, they did you know, just lose as a them in the regular pick. season. Yeah, and they yeah. lost them, exactly, they lost them in the regular season. Without Duke's Zion, not, though. As, Duke, as amazing as Duke is, and, of course, Zion, they're not the greatest shooting team, and Virginia Tech is actually one of the top shooting teams in the country, so if they, on a random day, can just get hot, I think they can beat Duke. I'm, uh, I'm... You said you have to not pick Duke to win, but what I'm doing is being contrarian by picking the most mainstream choice. Uh, I'm like doing a reverse reverse, and it's because of Zion, who is uh, I'm basing it just off of his clout alone. And um, I've actually got Duke taking down Tennessee in the uh, championship here because uh, I don't know the SEC. <laughs> so Zion killed it in the ACC tournament. Like we were saying that we didn't want him to come back for various reasons, but if he was healthy and he was ready to go, there was no chance that Coach K was going to leave him out and that he would continue to sit out because that's the kind of competitor he is. And Duke seems more or less unstoppable when he is on the floor along with the the other star freshmen they have. And I was actually looking back, and if you go back the last like 10 or 15 years, most tournament teams have something in common, and that's their very junior and senior led. There's only a handful of exceptions to teams that uh, win the national title with a lot of freshmen, and those teams are Duke and Kentucky, who are the most notorious for having only like freshmen one-and-done guys every year. So I think in terms of looking at a lot of these top seeds, you have a ton of veteran players uh, who have stuck around for three, four years, played together for a while now, and that's what makes them so so attractive as picks this year. But in terms of like beyond the top seeds, when we look at upsets, so everyone knows a 5-12 upset. I don't know. I'm kind of struggling with that one. Uh, I really like Murray State this year, but I think Marquette is – they're a talented team who's struggling lately, but when you have Marcus Howard, they could easily make a deep run. I'm pulling for John Morant, but outside of that, 
the the eleven seeds have done really well recently. There's none that I love. I don't know who are some of the teams that you guys are are intrigued by as some of your your upset picks early. I also have the same one for the five twelve uh, matchup where that's mostly the most common upset as the is the five twelve one, and I also have uh, uh, Murray State. They they've they've had some good tournament success in the past. They had. They had a buzzer beater, uh, you know, several years ago as a 12 seed, and you know, advanced around in, in the tournament. And yes, they have one of the best uh, players in the country. So, and they're one again, one of the hottest uh, shooting teams as well. So, so yeah, that was the only one that I could make any sort of case for with my limited college basketball knowledge. But I have I have a question before I uh, expand on one of my upsets. Yeah. What? is the average amount of time between rounds like if you play a game and you win how long do you have to recover before your next game in general so first weekend it's thursday saturday friday sunday okay so lsu and yale have known that they're playing each other since sunday Mm -hmm. and that means that they're having a uh, a pretty decent amount of time to prepare for their opponent and you know that those nerds over at Yale have been doing their homework. And those guys at LSU think they're going up against the nerds. So you know they're staying up late and playing uh, a little bit of Fortnite, right? I think the Yale boys come out there and use the power of math and uh, and superior glasses to win the game against LSU. And I've got them advancing to the round of 32. Ben stole my hot take as, a, <laughs> as my 14 seed. Yeah. My 14 seed uh, upset is Yale, <laughs> and I had the exact same opinion. I don't know if I'm actually gonna go through with that, but for me, it's my thing with LSU is that their head coach is suspended for being involved. Like he was literally caught on wire talking about paying their their like star freshman, and in the SEC tournament he yeah, their their interim coach they lost in the quarterfinals so i i don't think that lsu is going to make it to the sweet 16 i don't know if i'm gonna pull the trigger on yale over lsu but i i feel like a 14 seed is going to pull out a victory in the first round this season um or this tournament i should say and then i also think that a 13 seed because 13 seeds have won 24 of the last 34 years two last year and the one that I really like is UC Irvine over Kansas State because UC Irvine is the number one interior defense in the league, and Kansas State relies on a lot of points on the inside. Their star player, Dean Wade, is injured, and whether or not he plays, he's he's going to be a little banged up and not 100% healthy. So I, I like the Anteaters. I love. I was uh, just about. To say. Well, sorry. Going back to the LSU head coach real quick. Um, I like getting caught on tape talking about paying the players. I love how in uh, some sports the school pays money under the table so that uh, students will come and play for them, while at other schools, rich parents will pay money under the table so that schools will <laughs> let their kid not play sports. <laughs> this is what I was just about to say. Like, This can't be a coincidence that these two are playing each other with the scandals that they have. <laughs> it's uh, And I feel the same way about both of them. And it's like, am I supposed to actually be outraged? Does, are we all going to pretend that they're not paying college athletes under the table? And are we going to pretend that rich parents aren't paying to get their kids into colleges? You know, like, I don't think anybody has a problem with this. Once, if you got enough money, you can get almost anything done. I'm just amazed that 
uh, Aunt Becky or Aunt, Aunt Becky from Full House <laughs> is who was one of my favorites on Full House is part of the scandal. It's just a shame. <laughs> She's back in the spotlight, dude. She needs to take advantage of the publicity and get her Instagram following up. I don't think there's any. <laughs> like, is anyone honestly mad at Aunt Becky? I mean, maybe if you like paid your way through college, you're like, ah, uh, you know, that's how the other half lives. That's the the rich ones get to pay their way through. But you already knew that was true. So I I don't. I, it's just a non-story for me. It's like, okay, we knew this was happening already. Whatever. All right, so back to the brackets. The, we're we're recording this the day after the brackets were revealed, so I I do think that mine can change a lot. I I have seven out of the eight elite eight teams as one and two seeds right now. I do think there's going to be some upsets. I really like Nevada. I I was a big fan of them coming into the season. They disappointed a little bit, and they wound up losing the semifinals in the Mountain West tournament, but. There's always a 7 or 10 seed who makes a deep run. I like them this year. And I also want to mention that if Kansas makes it to the Sweet 16, I do think they have a really good shot at beating North Carolina because they're going to be playing essentially a home game in Kansas City. doesn't seem too fair to North Carolina getting sent out to the Midwest region and potentially having that draw, but Auburn just won the SEC tournament, so I'm kind of banking on them carrying that success into the Sweet 16. Yeah, so I basically have chalk as well for most of my bracket uh, and my Final Four as well, except I do have one team that I have in my Final Four that's definitely an outlier. Buffalo last year versus Arizona, who was one of the hottest teams coming into the tournament, and had DeAndre Aiden, who ended up being the number one overall pick. They ended up pulling off probably the biggest upset of that tournament. And this year, they've only lost... Granted, yeah, it was probably against, you know, not so great competition, but they've only had, like, I think three losses the entire season. Uh, And I think that um, the only real threat they have uh, in that region is Gonzaga, and they just lost to St. Mary's uh, in their conference uh, title game. So I actually have Buffalo in my Final Four. And do I really, really believe that they can make it? Sort of yes, sort of not, but I'm. I don't want to just pick all chalk. I want, you know, every year I, I whenever I make my bracket, I pick three teams that I feel really great about. But then I have one outlier, or if it's a a six seed, eight seed, eleven seed, whatever. I try to make sure I have one outlier that I think can make the final four. Like a so I have Buffalo Loyola as my Chicago quote unquote Cinderella or South Carolina. Yeah, they're not in the tournament again. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's a shame. I know. Um, I, so I was big on Buffalo all season long. I do think that they could absolutely make a run in the tournament, but they're going to have to play a team coming off a buy or not coming, coming off of the playing game in Arizona state or St. John's, at least one team from that first four, uh, has made it to the second round. A lot of times going all the way to the sweet 16. So I, that, that's something to watch out for on the flip side. It's, uh, Belmont Temple against Maryland. So I I like Maryland a lot more than I like Buffalo. So I'm having Buffalo lose in the first round. You're having them lose or make it all the way to the final four. So yeah, that, that, I mean that, that's it's more likely they'll lose. Granted, with with my tournament success in brackets, uh, my my very first year of doing brackets, I got all four teams right in my final four. But that was the one year where it was all four, number all uh, four number ones. Number yeah. one seeds. I think it was the only time right. I've done it as well. So yeah, 
that was the only time I got all four teams right. Ever since then, I've just been in the 27 percentile in every year of my brackets. So uh, take Corey's advice is what I'm so trying to say. I pick North Carolina win every year. They're really good, and I never have success. I've never – I don't think so. I've ever taken North Carolina to win, even though they've won like four of the last like 11 title games. I, I actually have never taken them, and this is the first year that I have. All right, so I guess just wrap things up. We've kind of talked about it. Uh, I have Michigan State over Gonzaga on the left side of the bracket, North Carolina over Tennessee on the right side, and North Carolina beating Michigan State in the national championship game. I've got Duke over Michigan on – is that the left side of the bracket? And then I've got Tennessee over Kentucky on the right side with Duke winning the whole thing uh, against Tennessee – with the same score I put every year I do this challenge, uh, they're going to win 420 to 69. Right, you guys? <laughs> right? No. Uh, in my bracket, I have Michigan State over Buffalo on the left side. And then on the right side, I have Chalk. I have North Carolina over Virginia. Even though Virginia has been like the worst tournament team ever, or, or good team ever in the tournament, uh, I think I could. It's like you, what you said, Corey. I struggled to find some team that could, you know, pull off uh, the upset or uh, become a Cinderella team in that region. And they're the only team that I have some sort of confidence in, even with granted their bad uh, tournament history. So I have them uh, losing to North Carolina and then North Carolina beating Michigan State uh, in the title game. I'm pretty sure that's a uh, if that it happened if ten those years two ago, meet in the championship, yeah, I was just about to say, didn't they meet uh, ten years yep. or yeah, exactly, eleven years ago years in the title ago. game? Yeah, 2009. Yeah. Oh, okay. North Carolina yeah. blew them out. They're up at like twenty five at halftime. It was right. awesome. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I you know. It, it, going back to Virginia, I can't pick them to make the final four until they actually make it to the final four. So, but literally, the is only it, thing is it contrarian is, to p- it. it is it contrarian to pick so, Virginia to make yeah, the final so four? Yeah, so I guess because they're the one seed, but they've had they've been so bad losing to becoming the first team to lose <laughs> to a sixteen. Las Vegas is saying that the one team that they're in trouble if they win it all is Virginia, because they had a six figure bet on them when they were at twelve to one odds. Outside of that, it doesn't matter. So, my favorite story from last year's tournament was there are these eight guys from who were who in Vegas and they their alumni was UMBC and they all decided to put in $100 on that game. And, you know, one of the guys even said like, oh yeah, this is just a total waste, but let's see what happens. And then UMBC pulls off the one of the biggest upsets in tournament history and then they win like a, a combined like 16 grand or something, wow. I think around that. So that was definitely a cool, st- cool story to hear. All right. So that wraps up our NCAA tournament discussion for now. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to that as the tournament moves along. But let's move on to our next segment, which is Embrace Debate. So in the second quarter of the Oklahoma City Thunder's March 11th victory over the Utah Jazz in Salt Lake City, Russell Westbrook got into a heated altercation with a Jazz fan that resulted in a $25,000 fine for the former MVP and a permanent ban for the fan. How much responsibility should players have when it comes to their interactions with rival fans? Listen, I, I don't, I don't um, think what Russell Westbrook did is valiant or it's uh, 
even something he should be doing. He's a you know millionaire playing in the NBA. He should be able to ignore you know things that are yelled at him. I'm sure they're yelled at him all the time. Russell Westbrook not exactly the most popular player in the NBA. But if you yell something at an NBA player in an NBA game and you're sitting 10 feet away from him, boy, you better be ready for some heat. I have no problems with Russell Westbrook turning around and serving this man up uh, a few hot insults, even threatening to beat this man up. Because I would be hard-pressed to believe that you're in any real danger if a millionaire threatens to beat you up in front of, you know, 60,000 people, or I don't know exactly how many people are in that arena, but there is, <laughs> that is a very um, hollow threat from Russell Westbrook, so I'm not buying it from the fan who was saying, I was, you know, I was scared that he was going to beat me and my wife up, yeah, and I listened to the interview with the fan, he was like, you can beat me up, you know, that's fine, trying to be the, he's being the white knight here, but to threaten my wife, to say you're going to put lay hands on my wife, now that's crossing the line. Sir, it's 2019, okay? Russell Westbrook being very progressive here, going gender nonconformist here, and being extra exclusionary, saying he would extend his the uh, the beatings that he was handed out uh, to women as well. Um, so I have no problem with Russell Westbrook's conduct here. I think a $25,000 fine, which is nothing to Russell Westbrook, is warranted. This is bad for the NBA's brand. Obviously, you don't want it to look like your players are out there trying to beat up the fans. But Russell Westbrook is definitely entitled to dish out a, 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 some insults, to dish out some threats after um, he gets verbally abused the way that this, these fans verbally, verbally abused him. And I think that the NBA handled this exactly right. I'm not a huge Westbrook fan. I, I find him a little overrated, but I could not be more on Russell Westbrook's side in this situation. Like that, that fan uh, is I mean, what, what a jerk. I mean, honestly, uh, Russell Westbrook, uh, you know, the only thing I would say, though, is that he probably shouldn't have said, I will F you and your wife up. <laughs> like, can you imagine the wife in that situation? She's just minding her own business, you know, just watching a just watching a game. And then all of a sudden he's he's she sees this multimillionaire, you know, giant athlete saying, oh, I will F you and your wife up. Like, oh, my God, <laughs> who are you? <laughs> Right, and, uh, and it, I guess this is where the assumptions come in because I, you're assuming that she was sitting by minding her own business, and I'm assuming that she was cheering. Her she was joining in with her husband. Yeah, her. you're probably right. Yeah. So it's you know it, whatever it is, uh, but I think that saying it's like oh it's fine if he's threatening to beat up a male <laughs> fan, but as soon as he threatens to beat up a female fan, listen, Russell Westbrook could beat any of these people up. It's not about who you know beating up someone weaker than you. Violence is bad. Uh, it, if if, you, if you're a fan that goes to you know a basketball game. Especially as someone uh, as close as he was to Russell Westbrook in that situation, you know, it's all good to you know to cheer, to boo, show your emotion a little bit. But once you, you know, start doing the things that he did to Westbrook, I mean, you're asking for you know payback. Yeah, from yeah, from and, Westbrook. And he just caught Westbrook on a bad night. You know, he, Westbrook goes into work all the time. There's like uh, some nights he'll be in a better mood than others. Tonight, you know, that night he wasn't ready for it. Do you guys remember? You've probably seen the gif of Russell Westbrook where like there was a fan who was flicking him off like right next to the uh, court. Oh, the, the, the he, Sixers like, guy. Like the, and then Westbrook like the just point. like... Yeah. yeah. And that he was just <laughs> And Russ made that guy look stupid because because that guy was being so you know blatantly mean. Uh, and it's also it, Philly. 
That too. <laughs> uh, sometimes all you have to do is point at Philly fans. Um, now I'm sorry, Philly fans. Like, but you guys have a reputation. Um, in in Utah, maybe Westbrook was expecting a little bit more of a uh, uh, gentler well, uh, fan base. Utah but. actually has a bad reputation. Uh, there are a lot of players who say go back to the '90s. They've had fans there make racial derogatory comments toward them. So Russell Westbrook, he reacted, and I think it's it's. It's reasonable to expect a human being, regardless of their status as a professional athlete versus just an, a spectator at a sporting event, to you know not take that lightly. So I agree with Brian in that I'm not a big Westbrook fan. I know Ben is as a big Thunder fan, and Russell Westbrook is one of the biggest reasons why you're a big Thunder fan. But to me, in terms of you know him having a reaction, I think it's totally reasonable. And you know, saying something back to the fan warrants a $25,000 fine, but I do like that the Jazz said, all right, we're going to permanently ban this guy. They permanently banned another fan who was caught on camera using a, another derogatory term, and different Utah Jazz fans started their own $25,000 goal for a GoFundMe to uh, donate to some society to kind of make up for, for what happened, in a sense. The reaction to this was perfect. I, when I woke up the next morning and saw the social media reaction, at first I thought everyone was taking the jazz fan side, and I was getting real steamed about it. But uh, after everything, in retrospect, after all the cards fell, uh, I think that th- this was dealt with correctly, and I'm not mad at all. I've always taken the player's side in that. I mean, do you guys remember the Marcus Smart incident when? Oh, at Oklahoma uh, State. When he was at Oklahoma yeah. State. And then at the time, I thought the fan called him something really bad, like the N-word, which ended up not being the case. But uh, at the time, I was on Marcus Smart's side when that happened. You know, people were saying, oh, Marcus Smart has to, he has to be smart in that situation. You know, put yourself in that situation. See how you like it. See how you like being called something really bad in the moment. Exactly. I mean, that's what happened with Westbrook. And I agree. I was also a big fan of Marcus Smart. I was very happy when the Celtics drafted him and, uh. Well, I'm just saying, at the end of the day, we could all stand to be a little nicer to each other, right? Then we mm-hmm. wouldn't then we don't have to worry about this. You're right. That is that is absolutely true. And you know, going forward, we'll see Russell Westbrook. This isn't his first interaction with fans, so It won't be the I last. would imagine someone else is gonna happen, especially knowing that, you know, how easy it seems for some of these people to get in his head. Uh, but I just I hope that uh, Utah fans can uh, you know take a look at themselves and this this doesn't become a a further issue with them but once you kind of start to develop a reputation like this it's hard to kind of lose that so um, i think that that wraps up our embrace debate here uh let's let's go ahead and move in. oh we actually have uh, some news That's interesting yeah we have a we have an athlete in the news okay so, uh, okay, right. on March 11th, former UFC featherweight and lightweight champion Conor McGregor was arrested in Miami Beach on charges of felony strong-armed robbery and criminal mischief for smashing the phone of a fan trying to take a picture with him. So, this is a new segment that we're debuting, when an athlete does something to get them in the news that has nothing to do with them being an athlete. And... First of all, I just want to pose a question. How do people like this guy? 
Like, how does he have such a great following? Because he just seems like he's a, a horrible human being outside of the ring or the octagon. Well, let me ask, let me answer your question with my own question, Corey. When's the fight? What is he promoting by getting himself back in the news? Because last time that I heard a story similar to this was when he uh, threw the hand truck at Khabib's bus. And everyone was like, is Conor McGregor out of control? Has he totally lost it this time? Next thing you know, he's getting paid so much money to be in the biggest fight in the UFC. I, I don't I don't buy this as anything more than a marketing uh, scheme. Maybe it's not the marketing scheme that his agent w- thinks is best or uh, or anyone thinks is best, but Connor's going to do it. And at the end of the day, it's going to make people pay lots of money to see him fight. Um, what a great marketing like- scheme. Smash yes, someone's phone and get and get I, all this I don't money. Know. I Smash a bus that. and then have another big fight. <laughs> like so, he's a few days off probation and he's like, "All right, I can do something to get arrested again." And he just there's a fan. Oh, let me wait for something to happen. And then all of a sudden, they try to take a pick with him, so he smashes their phone and just walks away with it. I don't know. It I can just like see it now. He's marketing. in the, he's in these team. He's gonna be in like a T-Mobile commercial and. He'll smash the Verizon phone <laughs> right to the ground. Be like, get T-Mobile today. It's, it's all about clout. It uh. is all about clout. And I think that this is just the next step. Uh, Conor McGregor, it's he, he's done this before, and it's worked before. So I, I see no reason. why. Because if – I don't think he needs to do this, honestly, because he's such a prolific fighter. I just think having his name on the bill um, will get everyone who's going to watch to you know sign up or go to their local UFC pay-per-view establishment. But – I just think it's all part of his clout. He's still he's not done. Conor McGregor's got plenty of fights ahead of him potentially. Uh, so this is just keeping him in the news. Hey, don't forget, I still exist. I'm Conor McGregor, and I'm gonna do some unruly stuff uh, so that you'll watch my next fight. That's my best Conor McGregor voice, by the way. <laughs> it's just like Lonzo. It's just like Lonzo Ball's dad, minus the violence. Where um, he tries, he'll do anything to promote. Uh, well, not himself, but or actually, no, himself, but also his son instead. But that was what a sneak diss, uh, calling Lavar Ball Lonzo Ball's dad, right? Like he's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's, uh, I'm sure he would be like, you know, put some respect on mine. That's my son, you know. Uh, he did but, say he could beat Michael Jordan one on one, so I, maybe but, I could give him some props. <laughs> exactly, that's the thing. It's it's the LeVar Ball model. It's the Kim Kardashian model. It's the Kanye West model. It's do the most outrageous, you know, uh, mar- marketing kind of, th- or like just the most outrageous thing you can get away with so that it catches everybody's attention. And then that everyone will pay attention to you. And Conor McGregor loves that attention. And it'll lead to more money. So I, I, I'm not buying in. I'm like, okay, Conor, you keep doing your thing. I'll see you at the next pay-per-view. I was actually in Las Vegas in uh, March 2016 when he lost to Nate Diaz at, I want to say it was UFC 194. And that, that was like a huge loss at the time because McGregor was a, he was a heavy favorite. And I'm pretty sure he really hasn't been the same, like arguably number one fighter in UFC, uh, at least for the, the featherweight and lightweight realms uh, since then. So Kind of like Ronda Rousey where she was on – top of the world in the mm-hmm. then she in women's ufc losing. and then once she lost it just kept getting worse yeah and she lost again kind of fell off yeah so I, I i i'm not a huge ufc fan uh, i think it's the first time that we've ever covered 
like MMA or any kind of uh, yeah. a fighting sport on this podcast. Going back to the if ben you can call this days. covering it, yeah, you're right. It is athletes in the news for doing something other than being an athlete. So, um, oh yeah, tune tune into he's done it for our fighting analysis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All right. So we'll see what happens with McGregor from here. But, you know, whether this is just some way to promote a fight or him just being a violent guy who can't help himself from smashing fans phones when they try to take pictures of him. Who knows? So. All right. Let's uh, let's wrap things up with our top five. Yesterday was St. Patrick's Day when we're, we're recording. So we're going to go ahead and count down the luckiest people in history in today's top five not two not three not four top five top five top five all right do we have any volunteers for going first today yes i want to go first this was a really difficult top five uh so i want you guys to have time to recover if mine (laughs) doesn't come out so good uh we'll start with my number five um and this is it's my number five because uh, I'm not super confident in it, but I think there's a lot of truth in this. LeBron James is my number five. This man was blessed with some of the uh, like luckiest genetics you can be born with. Uh, he's a, I mean, part, it's definitely a lot of hard work in his game and a lot of dedication and a lot of commitment, all that stuff. But I think ever since he was a teenager, everyone realized it's like, oh, this guy might be the perfect basketball player. And I don't think LeBron James got to choose that. Just like all of us, it's luck of the draw based on what body you're going to come out having. And LeBron James, one of the luckiest because his was like it was. Well, well according to LeBron, it was about all about the, the man above. <laughs> like, hey, sure. Yeah. You can call it luck. You can call it, uh, you know, being blessed. Uh, but it was all about an achievement that he uh, w- wasn't able to get with his own merits. It was something that uh, he happened upon. And it we're still seeing the effects of that today. Kind of a weak one. But I promise these get stronger. Number four, Baron Davis. Now, do either of you know who Baron Davis is? Yeah. Yeah, we've been fans of the NBA for a lot longer than most Golden State Warrior fans today. <laughs> okay. I, I, I actually didn't know who he him, was. Until... Him and Monte Ellis were the crew before Curry and Thompson. Nice. Okay, then this makes perfect sense. Um, he is my number four luckiest person of all time because he made the longest shot in NBA history with an 89-footer in February of 2001 with really? 0.7 seconds left on the clock in the third quarter. He heaved this one up from way downtown, dialed a long-distance number, and somebody picked up on the other end for three. And uh, it still stands to this day, uh, even with guys like Steph Curry and Klay Thompson, who like seemingly take shots from uh, the entire other side of the court all the time. So it's uh, he was pretty lucky to make that shot and go down in the history books with something that uh, I think they're going to have trouble breaking. If if players are ever able to make 89 footers reliably, I think basketball is broken. one of my favorite things to do on backyard basketball back in the day was whenever you got the slam dunk you could slam dunk it from anywhere so we would always go back court and then try to do a slam dunk as from (laughs) as far back in the court as we can go uh so essentially an 89 foot dunk just take flight um so yeah i thought that was pretty lucky shot from baron davis a guy who only made two of his uh uh, two half court shots in his entire career, or shots from beyond half court, and this was one of them. 
Okay, my number three is Tom Brady in Super Bowl 49. I think we have talked enough about Tom Brady on this uh, podcast. We've even talked about Tom Brady's luck on this podcast, how a few different plays could be the difference between uh, six wins and three losses and maybe a different record. But I think this one is the pinnacle of that luck, was um, the, the Seahawks not handing it to Marshawn Lynch and instead throwing an interception on the goal line. Uh, Tom Brady really lucked out on this one because – you know, by by all accounts, it, this should have been an easy touchdown for the Seahawks, um, but instead it helped to uh, continue to cement Tom Brady's legacy as the goat. Tom Brady really lucked out, and actually, a lot of people who don't like the Seahawks lucked out there too because it looked like the Seahawks were about to go back to back, and that would have been awful. Okay, so, don't oh, don't right, for, wait, hold on, don't don't for, don't, don't forget his first year um, that he won the Super Bowl. In the Raiders game, the snowball, you know, less than two minutes left to go in the game, he checks out, checks down, and all of a sudden Charles Woodson forces the fumble, and then Raiders recover, it and the game is over. But then all of a sudden, because of the tuck rule, it ends up being an incomplete pass. What's Tom Brady's career like if that rule wasn't uh, taking place and they lose in the divisional rounds? Like, is 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 Tom Brady the quarterback next year? Uh, are they? Do they have the success that they have uh, in you, you know in the future where they win two more Super Bowls in the next couple of years and then all of a sudden after 10 uh, winless years they end up winning 49, 51, and 53? I mean, who knows what happens if that's just rolled a fumble? It's uh, Tom Brady could probably have his own top five luckiest moments and they'd all probably be pretty important. Now, as a Patriot hater, I didn't want to go there, but absolutely Tom Brady belongs on this <laughs> list. Like there's so many things you can point to, uh, whether you're giving him those first three titles by with the tuck rule or just him winning Super Bowl 49. You said continuing to be the GOAT. No, that was what brought him into the conversation because he could still be sitting on three Super Bowls from 12 years ago. So yeah. And, and gonna... Drew Bledsoe getting injured yeah, in, right? in, like in the regular season. If Drew Bledsoe season. doesn't get hurt, then who knows if Brady ever gets a chance. So in, in the AFC Championship game that same year, they played the Steelers and Tom Brady got hurt in that game and Drew Bledsoe uh, led them to victory uh, before Bledsoe they marched on. A, a, two special teams touchdowns. Yeah, by Troy Brown, who yeah. is one of the most underappreciated football players of all time. So I think he earned his spot on this list. Maybe I should have put him twice and not <laughs> LeBron James. But anyways, um, definitely worth at least one mention on this list. My number two is actually uh, inspired by a quote from The Office. And recently online, I've seen this uh, this wave of hate towards The Office where people are like, oh, stop quoting The Office. Like, it's not that good of a show. It's just popular. Okay, here's the thing, people. Just because you don't like something that's popular doesn't mean that it's bad. Uh, the Office is really great, and I think this, what I'm about to say, is a good example of it. Uh, Creed Bratton is one of the funniest and also weirdest characters in The Office. Uh, it, it, it sometimes seems like he's a completely senile old man, but sometimes he has some real wisdom in the things that he says. And um, they were there's an episode where some warehouse workers win the lottery, and one of the uh, characters who used to work in the warehouse, who got promoted to work in The Office, he's sad because he used to go in um, on the lottery tickets with them, so they all quit their job, and they won the lottery, and he's still stuck at his job. Uh, but they, they're talking to the other characters about it, and Creed said, I already won the lottery. I was born in the U.S. of A, baby. And I think that there's a lot of truth in that sentiment. I feel really lucky that I live in a country where I can 
you know, pretty easily get a job, support myself. I can create a podcast if that's what I want to do. And, uh, and I can enjoy relative safety. And most of the time, like my country isn't getting destroyed by civil war or by, you know, somebody else who's got malice intent for my country. It's pretty freaking sweet living here in the United States. And even though a lot of people will tell you times are worse now than they ever have been, I think it's important to be grateful for some of the good things that we've got going on in this country. So I'll say it. Number two, I uh, luckiest people alive are natural born Americans, because like Creed said, they already won the lottery. Could not agree more. Yeah. Yeah. This is a very pro USA podcast. I'm going to go ahead and put that forward. I think you two would agree. Uh, but my number one, and this was the first thing that came to my head when we were thinking of luckiest people, is Domino from Deadpool. Did you guys see Deadpool 2? No. No. <laughs> okay, well, the, the idea is, even if you haven't seen the movie, the idea is still very novel. So Domino's power is that she's lucky. Her luck manifests itself on its own through subconscious telekinesis. As long as the impending danger is in her line of sight, her powers will kick in and keep her safe. Um, so it's technically not luck, but it really is just luck. And in the movie, there's all these things that just happen around her where she'll, uh, like, for instance, she was fighting a bunch of, like, goons in this, uh, like, it was like a mental like ward and the goons around her kept on like slipping on like children's toys and murdering themselves. Like she didn't actually have to touch anybody because she was so lucky that they all happened to slip and die in these all creative ways. Obviously Deadpool rated our movie. So they really went overboard with the gruesomeness of these deaths, but she is her whole power is that she's lucky, uh, which I think makes her uh, a great candidate for this list. Domino from Deadpool Two the number one on my list. If you haven't seen Deadpool 2, a really good sequel. Deadpool, I think, is better, but Deadpool 2 uh, does a good job as being the sequel there. Um, also, listen to my podcast, Affle Chat, where we talk about movies. Okay, <laughs> that's my list. <laughs> I'll go next. Uh, uh, so for my number five, uh, you know what? In honor of last uh, the last pod that we did, uh, where we did a wiki segment on Pac-Man Jones... I will take Pac-Man Jones as my number five uh, for top five luckiest uh, people. Uh, The amount of times that he's been arrested, suspended, uh, the amount of strippers that he's beaten up in his life, I don't know how he has lasted as long as he has uh, playing in the NFL and uh, and has not been kicked out or, you know, whatsoever. So I went with, so I'll have Pac-Man Jones as my number five. My number four, I went with Lou Gehrig, uh, and the reason why is because back in uh, the late 1930s, uh, Lou Gehrig found out some terrible news about uh, how he did not have much time to live with his disease, and on July 4th of 1939, the Yankees' first baseman had, uh, you know, National uh, Lou Gehrig Appreciation Day at the stadium, and he talked about the terrible news uh, with the fans that day and uh, he gave a really nice speech and he talked about how he was no he considered himself as the luckiest man on the face of the earth so i went with lou gehrig as number four Uh, i think it's a really great selection i i feel like you should be even higher i didn't even think about putting them but yeah yeah that's a really solid one Mm -hmm. uh my number three i went with robert horry uh, he was a 
player in the NBA for, I think, 15, 16 seasons, played with the Spurs, the Rockets, uh, and he won more titles than, like, other than, like, Bill Russell, mostly, probably won more titles than anybody, and uh, he averaged 7 points per game, 4.8 rebounds per game, and 2.1 assists per game. Does that sound like someone who deserves to win 7 titles? I don't think so. Someone with his talent should not have that many championships, so I went with him as my number three. My number two, I went with a lady named by the name of Joan Ginther. Um, for people who don't know who that is, um, she won the lottery not once, not to sound like not to sound like LeBron, not <laughs> once, not twice, not three times. She won the lottery four times in her life, wow. which is unbelievable. Like. I can't, I can only imagine if I won the lottery just once, like I, you guys would never hear from me again. <laughs> I would have my own island. You guys would need a replacement for this podcast. And I'd probably be in Vegas dead in a year. And I, I, I don't, I couldn't even imagine like how, what she did with that money, winning it four times. If I was a person that won the lottery, like I would have the, the giant check. Above, like in front of my face making sure no one knew my identity and that way no one could bother me and if if that were to happen like let's say i did and then all of a sudden people are knocking down my door like people saying oh oh please please donate to our church please donate oh, i have this surgery like no you get you get nothing i don't know you you get nothing i'll share if i won i would share it to you know you guys <laughs> right. i would share yeah, just I'm putting on the record that I would share it with you guys. I would share. You don't it even with... have to just share it with us. You can you can sponsor the podcast. Right? <laughs> oh, yeah. true. Right. <laughs> that just promote you personally. Right. Hey, listeners, are you looking for a great person? Just a straight up, uh, an amazing friend, an amazing person to talk sports with. Well, <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Brian Wells. <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> See if Brian Wells is right for you. <laughs> Yeah, so I would share it with you guys. I would share it with closest friends and family, and that's it. I would not share it with, you know, the church or the poor or anything like that. I would be selfish and keep it to myself and blow it off in Vegas. And I, again, I'd be dead within a year, probably. And um, it's so great we have this on record because people, when that happens, people will be like, oh, the money changed him. And it would be like, mm -hmm. no, it didn't. No. <laughs> it's always like this. <laughs> I have proof. <laughs> Oh, it's so true. Uh, so I went with that as as her as my number two. My number one, uh, I went with the Average Joe's dodgeball team. And the reason why is because they're a team that, before they even won the, the big prize, they had to get into a, uh, the dodgeball tournament by winning this regional qualifier, and they lost to Girl Scouts. And, and before they were about to lose, officially, the committee found out that one of the members on the on the Girl Scouts team uh, used anabolic steroids and a beaver tranquilizer, and that ended up uh, disqualifying them and putting Average Joes into the tournament. And then uh, later in the tournament, in the semifinal match, Gordon, 1 verse 5, ends up... Uh, coming through in the clutch and actually uh, helping the average Joe's dodgeball team to the the championship match versus uh, the Globo Gym Purple Cobras. And then 
right before they're about to lose for disqualification for not having enough players, Peter LaFleur shows up at the last minute and then the their fate is rested on Chuck Norris out of all people for them to have the match uh, happen. And then uh, once Chuck Norris gives the thumbs up for approval on having them play, they end up going down 4-1 uh, with you know one guy left being the uh, teenage uh, love puppy, as Dwight likes to call him. Uh, and then uh, they have a double fault that White Goodman has because he stepped over the line and hit Peter LaFleur. And they go to a sudden death match and he puts a blindfold over his face and without in the sudden death match uh, to win the title. And he ends up beating White uh, and winning the money. But not only that, he put the hundred grand that White gave him uh, for selling average Joes and put it on them to for, uh, for them to win the dodgeball tournament at 50 to one. And they went, end up winning $5 million and he uh, ends up, you know, having White go out of business uh, or losing the rights of having Globo Jim. And if if he, if if that double fault doesn't count and, he, and White, you know, gets him, he has nothing. He has, he loses the gym and he loses <laughs> all of his money. <laughs> I love that movie, but it, a lot of luck involved. So I went you, with the dodgeball. You did a great job of explaining Peter Lafleur's luck, but you did miss out on the key fact that he doesn't even show up to the championship game if he doesn't have a chance encounter with Lance Armstrong. With Lance Armstrong, oh! <laughs> I missed it. Oh, I missed it. I knew I forgot something. <laughs> yeah, uh, I never so really yes, thought I... of it like that until you like put it into perspective just now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this should be instead of the underdog story, it should be the story of sheer luck. <laughs> <laughs> so, average Joe's as the luckiest, uh, not person, but said a group of people uh, ever. That's my number one. Nice. All right, I will uh, wrap things up with my top five. And at number five, I have Nichiren. I may have mispronounced that, but he was uh, a big. Um, I don't want to say founder, but a, a important leader in the the Buddhist community in Japan. Uh, really had his own form of Buddhism called Nichiren Buddhism, and he was in he was alive in like the the twelfth thirteenth century. So it was at a time where uh, bringing unique religious opinions that go against the the popular belief of the the, the higher ups. Uh, wasn't wasn't usually okay so uh, because of some of his his teachings and the followings and that he was gaining uh, they he was actually sentenced to death and he was going to be executed so that way he doesn't basically just you know cause this this huge uh, change in philosophy among uh, the the Japanese people so as Nichiren was getting set to be executed I've actually heard two different accounts one of them says that there was a giant orb uh, the size of the sun that appeared in the sky and scared the executioners out of uh, taking action. I've also heard one, which I think is even better, was that as the executioner was lifting up his sword, getting ready to behead him, he was struck by lightning and killed. So they were like, well, 
I guess you're not going to die. So he was just exiled instead and was able to continue his teachings. And it was a very important person in the 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 Japanese Buddhist uh, history. So Nichiren. Dang, that's number five? Yeah. Yeah, that's my number five. <laughs> that's pretty goddamn lucky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'd never heard of him before. So it was tough for me to put him any higher. But yeah, he's my number five. Number four. Uh, I don't know if this should go to Terry Bradshaw, Chuck Knoll, Franco Harris, just the Pittsburgh Seals in general, but the Immaculate Reception. So 1972 divisional round, the Steelers have never won a playoff game before. They're trailing the Raiders 7-6 on their own 40-yard line with 22 seconds left to play. Terry Bradshaw's under uh, huge pressure by the Raiders, just kind of chucks up a pass and it seems like the Raiders break it up, and that's the end of the game. But no, somehow, Franco Harris just happens to be there to catch the ball, and he runs it all the way to the end zone for a touchdown. The Steelers win 13-7. First victory for the team, and they go from a team who struggled for four decades to winning four Super Bowls in the 1970s and you know gained the, the reputation of the great organization they are now. So the the immaculate reception in general is my number 4 and all the people involved in it for luckiest people ever. It's a great like that's a fantastic football moment. I don't think you even have to be a Steelers fan. Like that's just a, such a at this point it's just such a uh part of football lore. You know, I yeah. think anybody can appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, especially like the fact that just the way the camera angles happen on that, it's just kind of like out of nowhere. Yes. It that that adds to the the lore behind it. Uh so number 3, I'm going with Teddy Roosevelt who should have been assassinated. 1912, he was getting ready to give a speech, and the thing that saved him from the assassin's bullet was his 50-page speech and his eyeglass case. And after being shot and surviving, he went on to give a 90-minute speech in its entirety, saying it'll take a lot more to kill this bull moose. Uh, so Teddy Roosevelt is a, a great president. On the He's on Mount Rushmore, just a... He seems like an all-around interesting guy based on what I've learned from him in history. And he lucked out there and uh, escaped assassination and was able to give that great speech. So he comes in at my number three. My number two, I was actually going to go with Joan Arginther here like Brian did. But then I, I realized that while Joan won the lottery four times, she only won about $20 million in total. So... I'm sure that's it. Yeah. Okay. Well, hear me (laughs) out. So, (laughs) so I'm sure that everyone is kind of familiar with the, the person who won uh, a one and a half billion dollar mega millions in South Carolina back in October. Uh, I'm sure that both of you and probably all of our listeners spent some money on tickets. Well, it turns out that the guy or the person, I'm, I'm pretty sure they said it was a man, who won, actually let someone cut in front of him in line before purchasing him, purchasing his ticket that wound up netting him $1.5 billion. So for that generous decision, just an act of kindness, you know, it, all he did was let someone else go before him. That lucky decision wound up winning him $1.5 billion. So... That person has chosen to remain anonymous. I don't have a name to pull out, but whoever they are is number two. I could never live with myself if I'm that guy. No. If the guy, oh, hey, you can cut me. You can have the billion dollars that I am trying to get as, as well. Yeah, I would never live that down. 
I wouldn't. I would make sure I would never tell anyone either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So at at number one, I have Franz Salak, who is a Croatian man, and so I know Brian did this earlier, uh, but to pull my best LeBron James impression. He survived not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, but seven near-death experiences. He survived a train crash, a plane crash, and a bus crash in the 1960s. And then he, on multiple occasions, was able to escape his burning car before it burst into flames. He also survived a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Uh, which that wasn't necessarily a near-death experience because it was to a lower extremity that I don't want to get into, but that's that's just a, a case of him not having great luck and potentially putting himself in danger. But he also, in 1995, so 20 years after his near-death experiences, he got hit by a bus and survived it. And then the following year, he got uh, into another car accident and was able to survive that. So he has seven near-death experiences that he survives. And then later in 2003, at 73 years old, he won a million dollars in the Croatian lottery. So, yeah, he's considered both the luckiest and the unluckiest man ever. So for me, I got to go with uh, Mr. Salak as my number one luckiest man, person if, in history. If, if all that happened to me, minus the million dollar thing, but if all that happened to me, I would just never leave. Like, I would never go outside again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy because he like it had all this stuff happen in like a 10 year stretch. And then he went 20 years like, oh, I guess I'm invincible. And then all of a sudden he gets hit by a bus. So he's still alive, <laughs> too. He's nine, turning 90 years old in June if he makes it there. Uh, so yeah, he's, he's, uh, had quite the experiences and it is pretty unreal that he's going to most likely die of natural causes considering how many other times he really should have died. So, all right, that wraps us up for our top five. So before we close things out, everyone's going to go ahead and give a final take for the episode. So I will start things off and... We were talking about the Browns and the Steelers earlier. The Browns made some flashy moves. The Steelers lost a couple superstar players, but I'm still going to go ahead and say that the Steelers will win the AFC North in 2019. It's bold, but I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. No, everyone wants to go with the Browns. So it's like one of those things where it shouldn't be a bold pick, but it feels like one. Uh, but even, yeah, they... before the, even before the Odell move... I, I would have predicted that everyone's quote-unquote bold call would be, oh, the Browns are definitely making the playoffs of yeah, now Baker it's not a in another year, anymore. and Kareem Hunt is now there. So, yeah, it, it's now not really that bold if you pick the Browns to uh, make it. Yeah, and it, it kind of just hinges on your opinion of Lamar Jackson. I, I, I think that Lamar Jackson's kind of been figured out at this point, yeah, and if he doesn't start throwing, then the Ravens are in some big trouble. Uh, I think the Bengals are irrelevant. So yeah, Steelers, I'm not concerned yes, about Baltimore talent, and Cincinnati. It's all Cleveland. So Exactly. So it's like, can the upstart Browns be better than the perennial contenders Steelers? So um, we'll see. All right, what do you guys have? I will say the Anteaters will be in the Sweet 16. Uh, I will also say uh, one, I'm going to say bowl call. I'm not going to 
say which one, but I'll say one of the two seeds lose to a 15. Uh, and okay. I will also say Matt Patricia, yeah, he'll be fired by the end of next season. Because uh, he <laughs> was pretty atrocious in his first year as a head coach, and he's kind of proving as a GM. Uh, maybe it's not all him GM-wise, but I'm sure he's part of it. Uh, that He's not exactly the best GM as well, just bringing in all these uh, guys that he used to coach with the Patriots. Trey, Fla- Trey Flowers I do love, but still, still a lot of money for just one pass rusher. Uh, so I'm going to say, yeah. Two bowl calls, thirteen the the UC Irvine Sweet Sixteen, uh, a fifteen over two upset, and uh, Matt Patricia being fired. Probably too many takes, but whatever. It's all on the record now. Yep, um, exactly. Okay, my f- finally mine. It's actually just kind of an expansion on my, uh, uh, or just doubling down, I guess, on my previous bold take. The Cardinals are going to take kyler murray first overall and the 49ers are going to collect on joey boza so nick um, boza i i keep writing joey is the problem i'm reading (laughs) it off here nick boza um if his brother wants to come join us he's 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 very welcome to uh but nick boza at number two to the niners i'm doubling down on it all right so those are our final takes and with that that concludes another episode of he's done it be sure to tune in next week for our next episode where we will give our full preview for the upcoming 2019 Major League Baseball season. Before you leave, please take some time to rate our show and leave us a review. Your feedback is both appreciated and helpful as we try to grow our audience. Also, be sure to follow and engage with our Twitter account at He's Done It Pod for updates on new releases and other exclusive content. For my co-hosts Benjamin Carlson and Brian Wells, I'm Corey Navani. Thanks, everyone.